appreciate James leading that song. I got to tell you, you know, I guess we all have favorite songs. That has got to be my favorite song that's been written in a long time. I love that song, but it's beautiful. Um, I'm sorry, I've been in a texting Bible study and they forgot that uh, I preach at 4 o'clock. <laughs> but anyway, um, tonight we're going to go back to our study. Good to see everybody that braved the uh, weather and came out in the snow. And uh, you're here, and that's, that's wonderful. And I hope that our study together tonight will be a good one. We're going to go back, and I'm doing some lessons, obviously, on self-control, um, as was mentioned a little bit earlier in the prayer and so forth. But um, I'm kind of looking at it from maybe a couple of different aspects and obviously trying to relate it um, to our theme, which is Be Holy, of course. Um, last time... A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the idea from Psalm 119 in particular of David's love for the law of God and how that brings self-control. I'll make mention at least once during the lesson. But if one is going to strive for personal holiness, and that's what we're trying to do this year, we're trying to focus our attention on that, hopefully practically, and we'll get into some very practical things of how to you know, maybe better achieve that, how others have done it in the past, sort of learn from their example. Uh, And I'll start that next Sunday morning, actually looking at some of that. But if you're going to strive and achieve personal holiness, considerable consideration is going to have to be given to your own self-control. Now, this lesson, just like last, uh, the last lesson a couple of weeks ago, this lesson is not going to be, guys, you've got to control yourself. Everybody's out of control, that kind of thing. But I'm going to look at it more from a practical point of view, and and really from a principle point of view. I hesitate to say theological, because that sounds like we get up in an ivory tower and it's not practical at all. But I want to talk about it from the standpoint of what the Scriptures say, and and hopefully that will make more sense as we get into the lesson. If we simply just fulfill our personal desires, in other words, if you want to put it very simply, if we just do what we want to do, that, that relegates us to the same position as everybody in humanity. I'd like for you to turn with me, if you will, over to Ephesians chapter 2, and something that Paul observed, generally speaking, about all those Christians, all the converts in Ephesus. You'll notice here, Paul makes the point that the way of the world, that is the way people live their lives, is simply to yield to Satan is to give in to their own desires. Read it together with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, or the way of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and that would be Satan, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. You were like that. And among whom also, verse 3, we all, had our manner of life, our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And so we were, is the, thing, is the point, we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. If that's all I do, if I just simply do what I want to do, and, and we're a society that very much defends and believes in, in your own rights, Uh, personal rights. I can do what I want to do. I am a free man or woman. I can do what I want to do. We're very much given to that, and I'm glad for that. 
Because it means if I want the freedom to be a Christian, at least right now as things stand, I have that freedom to be that. And so I'm thankful to God for that. And I pray that we continue to have that freedom. Yeah, there will be gross abuses of it. Yes, we will go too far as all free societies always have. And there will be freedoms granted to people who should not have them, etc., etc. But if it means that Christians will be free to be Christians, then I'm, I'm thankful to God for that. But if all I simply do is say, okay, that gives me the right to do what I want to do, then I'm just like everybody else, and I'm certainly not living the life of a Christian. As Wes emphasized last Sunday night, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 beginning, and down through chapter 7 and verse 1, the mandate would be, come out from among them and be ye separate. And if you notice, he goes on to talk about, in verse 1 of chapter 7, perfecting your holiness. Now, I want to focus on that tonight. I want to draw our attention to that phrase, perfecting holiness, because that means completing it, maturing it within yourself. And so here is the idea that I respect God, I fear God, I know that God has said you cannot live like the world, you have to come out from among them and be separate, you've got to be different, and all of those things we put up this morning in the definition of holiness, you've got to do that. If you're going to be my sons and daughters, if you're going to live like I mean for you to live, but you've got to go through a process, and the process toward holiness, to holiness, it's going to take work, and it takes time. And you don't just come up out of the waters of baptism, dripping water, and you are holy. And I said that this morning. I'm not reneging on that. But practically speaking, in each individual area of my life, there's going to be a process where more and more and more I become holy. And that's why 1 Peter chapter 1, if we translate that, and we will really look at that verse and why I keep saying this, if we translate it as it is written, it is an imperative, that is, you must do this, but it is something you will do in the future tense and in an ongoing future tense. Now, what does all that mean? It means you work on it. It means you are growing. It means you are becoming more and more holy as more and more you separate from the processes and thinkings and thought patterns, etc., the ways of the world, and you are separating yourself to God. So you become, and you'll notice I put on the, out, uh, on the outline, you become outstanding individuals. Christians do. They stand out, which is literally what it means to be outstanding. They stand out because they're living differently. And so Paul says, if you're still open to Ephesians 2, that's the way you were. But you're not like that anymore. You are saints. If you turn back a page and look at the opening to the book, you are saints. You are holy ones, separated unto God. So you don't live like that. But beyond just being outstanding, and people stand out for all kinds of reasons. They stand out for reasons that they want to. They maybe dress, out, dress uh, outlandishly, or if we go to a football game and we want to stand out as a fan, we may carry a poster, a sign, we may paint our face. There are a lot of ways to stand out in life. But beyond just simply standing out, and people have done that religiously, and we'll talk more about that beginning next Sunday morning, that there are things you can do to stand out so the world recognizes, just like the Pharisees, for example, in the New Testament. 
You could look at their dress. You could look, look at certain things and say, oh, that's a religious person. That's a Pharisee or whatever. You can look at certain people today. Uh, you could put on a certain T-shirt or wear certain jewelry or whatever, and people would at least question, are you one of those? You know, Are you one of those fanatical religious people, etc., etc.? But the Lord calls us to do more than just stand out, doesn't he? He calls us to be outstanding people. But really what he calls us to be, and you'll notice on the outline, I said it like this, outstanding individuals, but moreover, outstanding disciples. And that's different. I used to, when I was studying martial arts, I had one teacher in particular, and uh, Shotokan. But this guy was great. And one of the things that he said was, you can walk around and you can look and you can act, and I know some of you are very familiar with this, that you are, and I won't quote his exact language, but you know, that you are a very bad individual. It's kind of like issuing a challenge to the world, come on, bring it on. Or you can be very confident in what you are and who you are, and you can walk around like you are just simply a normal individual and you don't have anything to prove. It will always be there. You will always have it. And it will give you self-confidence, and what will show to the world is the self-confidence. I love that, and I still do. And I think what Jesus is saying, and I believe what the Bible is teaching us, is that you can, you remember back last quarter when we were talking about the light and it being so bright and everything that people want to shield their eyes from it, and kind of like what was going on when we were trying to adjust the lights our west was before we started But when it gets too bright, people shield their eyes. They don't see anything anymore because the light is too bright. Or you can shine just right. And it can be the kind of thing that when people look at you, they say, there's something different about you, and whatever it is, I want that. That's the way we ought to be as Christians. So beyond just being outstanding people or people who stand out, we want to be outstanding disciples. We want to be people whose lives so follow Jesus and his teachings that attention is drawn to us, but for the right reason. And I hope all of that makes sense. I'd like for you to turn back with me to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've had a lot of teaching about the sermon. I've taught about it. Wes has taught about it. The men, those in the Friday night class, we've talked about it downstairs. So there's a lot that I'm not going to say. And you're undoubtedly familiar with it anyway. But let's just take the Sermon on the Mount for the moment. We'll just kind of look at it as a whole for a moment. Jesus teaches outstanding qualities in the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches his disciples. And he teaches them what it means to be an outstanding disciple. Even if a person just went through, and look with me at the very first paragraph, the the sort of preamble to the, the sermon, the Beatitudes they're called. If you just look at the Beatitudes, if a person just really would strive to emulate these things, I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit and those that mourn and those that are merciful, etc. If you just were striving to be like that, you would be outstanding. And you would be an outstanding disciple. So when you begin to look at the principles that are taught here, Jesus is teaching a unique lifestyle. I mean, you go through the pages, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you do those things, 
You forgive people. You count on and depend on God. You're a charitable individual. But you don't, you know, brag about it. And everybody knows about it when you do something for somebody. And just all of those things. You're not a judgmental person. In fact, you judge righteous judgment where it's necessary. But you're not always pointing a finger at somebody and telling them what's wrong with them. If you live like that, you would be outstanding. And you would be an outstanding disciple of Jesus Christ. And it would attract people. And so if a person simply strives to follow these principles in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to be the salt of the earth. He's going to be the light of the world. And he's going to stand out from the world. I mean, just take one of what I consider to be the hardest passages you know, and I have from the day I obeyed the gospel. But, you know, you look at Matthew 5. He that smites you on one cheek, turn the other also. And if you notice, this smites you on the right cheek. And from the very beginning, when I've looked at this passage, what I've seen is a person that not just hits you in the cheek, but he backhands you. Now, if you're a man, you know the difference. And you understand the difference. Hit me like a man. Don't insult me and backhand me across my cheek. It's an insult. A person that is not afraid, there's no running in here, no cowardly activity. But he bravely answers that by turning the other. It stands out. It's different. People see it. So I won't go on and on with that, but we understand the point. These are outstanding qualities to add to your life. Now Jesus further emphasizes throughout the sermon the need for self-control. I mean, after all, if you're going to stand there and let somebody backhand you for the second time, you know, you're going to have to exercise some self-control. But as Everton taught us in the last Friday night class, when you look at, what you call it, the root issue behind all of these points that Jesus is making, there is a, you've heard it's been said of old, but there's a root cause to why Jesus is saying what he's saying. There's a root issue here. For example... It's not just calling somebody a fool. It's not just killing them. It's the anger that leads to that. It's not just the adultery. It's the lust and all of that that leads to it. It's, it's whatever is at the, the heart, at the foundation of the problem. And so when you look at this, you realize that Jesus is teaching the need, the practical need for self-control in all kinds of circumstances of life. And I think a lot of other things could have been chosen too, but the Lord perfectly chose these to illustrate the point. Let's look for a moment, and I'm just going to focus in on this one beginning in verse 27. Read it together with me. The point will be obvious. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not commit adultery. They knew one of the Ten Commandments was, thou shalt not commit adultery. They understood that it was wrong. But I say unto you, verse 28, that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And Jesus goes on to say, If your right eye offends you, that is, causes you to stumble, then pluck it out, cast it from you. Uh, it's profitable for you to enter into life, then one of your members perish, then your whole body should be cast into hell. If your right hand offends you, if it causes you to stumble, then cut it off and cast it from you. It's profitable for you that one of your members should perish, then your whole body should be cast into hell. And we look at that, and it's extreme. 
But Jesus is saying you must have self-control. We've talked about it, and we could go on talking about it, and this is not a a lesson in lust and so forth, but we can say we are born with natural desire. That's going to be there. God put it there. There isn't anything wrong with it. Channeled and exercised through the the proper uh, means, you know, to marry, to have your desire be unto your wife or to your husband, etc., is taught in the Scripture everything right with that. That is holy, it is righteous. But we understand that that passion can be misdirected. And it can be directed towards someone else besides a spouse. We all understand that. We're grown people, most of us here, and we get it. And you'll notice that Jesus is saying you have to exercise self-control. If you commit adultery, we all know, you've heard it from the beginning in the Bible that it's wrong to do that. But I'm telling you that the root cause of adultery is uncontrolled desire. And that's what you have to control. That's what you must, again, apply your self-control to and keep from carrying you away into that sin. I've often illustrated it like this, and, and, I, and I'll tell you a couple of uh, quick stories here. A young guy and I were sitting in Shoney's. Some of you may know Big Boy and Shoney's and all of that. We were sitting in a Shoney's one morning, There were a group of older men, probably about my age now, sitting behind us. And they were all laughing and joking. And apparently they all were married. And they all were laughing about how you can look, but you can't touch. And so they thought it would be cute to come up with all the phrases like, you can shop, but you can't buy. You can look, but you can't touch. And went on and on with that. And we got to thinking about that. And we said, there's everything wrong with that. Because what that's doing is not just ignoring but it's in the face of Jesus who would say to you, if you look to a woman to lust, to shop, to etc., etc., then you ignore my warning. You do exactly the opposite of what I command you. So we got to talking about it that morning, and we came up with some things that have stuck with me all through the rest of my years. He said, you know, I'm, I'm... a normal person. I'm a normal man. I have normal desires. I'm sure that doesn't shock you, but I'm a normal man. If I'm at a grocery store and I round the corner and a girl comes around the corner and she looks good, etc., she's dressed like she just got out of a Tarzan movie and she was playing Jane, you know, I'm going to look at her and I'm going to say, man, she looks good. Now, I can say to myself, whoops, you know, let's turn the card around and go the next time. Or I can make it a point for the next 30 minutes to make sure I shop on every aisle she's in so I can get another look and still another look and still another look at Jane and maybe even begin to conjure up in my mind, I can strike up a conversation with Jane here and you get the point. I believe that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not saying here that to become a Christian is to become abnormal. That all of a sudden you no longer think like a human being. You don't feel like a human being. Well, that would be impossible. You could not even obey what God teaches you to do that. I mean, I'm married. I don't just turn it off and no longer feel like a man because I'm married. No. But there's responsibility. There is a covenant, if you want to use Job's words, that I've made with my eyes because I am married. 
I'm honoring what Jesus says. Now, let's just take that for a moment and go to to another point here that Jesus illustrates in verse 33. Again, you've heard it has been said by them of old time, you shall not forswear yourself. When I was a kid, and you wanted somebody to believe that you would do what you tell them you're going to do, you know, I swear. And then I swear on a stack of Bibles. First of all, it was I swear on a Bible. And then it was I, stare, I swear on a stack of Bibles. And then we got really stupid. I swear on a stack of Bibles with a cherry on top. Now, I've thought about that in later years and thought, how stupid. We mixed those, you know, <laughs> the cherry on the top of the Sunday. But we said it. And what it was, was let me go a step further, step further, step further, because I really, 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 really mean I'm going to keep my word. And you notice Jesus, Jesus says here very simply, don't swear. Don't swear at all. Just verse 37, let your no be no and your yes be yes. And it be that simple. Because it's wrong to lie. And it's wrong to swear. And it is wrong for you, and I'll say it like this, to have to swear. If I've got to assure you that I swear on a Bible, on a stack of Bibles, and even put a cherry on top, then that means my word ain't worth too much. And when I tell you something, you can't really count on it until I start backing it up with all those sometimes ridiculous vows that I'm telling you the truth. So Jesus is illustrating self-control throughout this. And you, you begin to realize, man, as you look at these paragraphs, wow, well, each one of these things. I mean, it just screams out at you, even though he doesn't use the terminology, be self-controlled. In the way you act, in the way you talk, in the way your passions, you you know, you get a handle on your passions so your anger doesn't run away with you, your sexual desire doesn't run away with you, you tell the truth, you, you know, in in the idea of being uh, persecuted, mistreated, uh, you know, treated badly, etc., that whole paragraph about carrying the baggage perhaps for the Roman soldier or turning your cheek to him and all of that kind of thing, it's demanding self-control. And so you begin to see throughout this sermon that the need for self-control necessarily precludes whether or not I'm going to stand out, be different, or let's use our term, I'm going to be holy. Now, I want to suggest to you that if you look at the tongue, and let's focus on that for a moment, and I'd like for you to turn over with me to the book of James. And go with me, first of all, to James chapter 1, for James talks about it a couple of times in his book. That there's sort of a watermark, a litmus test, or whatever you want to call it, but there's, a, there's something that stands out in your life that kind of measures Not just how much self-control you have, because you can be extremely self-controlled in one area, some people are, and yet in another area have no control whatsoever. I I realize that. But it measures your ability to control. So, when James uses the idea of the tongue here, he uses it to talk about overall self-control. Now, read a couple of passages with me. Look at chapter 1 to start with. And I'm going to start in verse 21. When he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. And if you remember what this terminology basically means is lay apart everything that's wrong, everything that's bad, and then everything above that that's bad. So you're really trying to strip out all the bad from your life. And receive with meekness the engrafted word. You may remember that from our Man in the Mirror series. 
the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. So I want the word of God living in me. I want it grafted to my heart so that it's now growing and living in me, and it's guiding me. Now drop down, if, if you will, to verse 25. When he says, Whoso looks, and you remember, gazes into the perfect law of liberty, and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Now think about that for a moment. I'm looking into the Word, I'm seeing what it is I'm supposed to do, and I'm doing it. You know, I'm just doing like the Beatitudes. I'm not just reading Jesus' list, but I'm really trying to be merciful. I'm really trying to be humble, etc., etc. So he continues therein, not being a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now notice as he goes on in verse 26. If any man among you seem to be, or thinks himself, considers himself to be religious, and bridles not his tongue, self-control here, bridles not his tongue, he deceives his own heart, and that man's religion is vain. Why single the tongue? Why the tongue? Well, I think you get the answer if you'll turn a page or so to chapter 3, and notice what James goes on to say. My brethren, and I'm starting verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, for in many things we all offend. That is, we all stumble, we all sin, is the idea. If any man does not sin or offend in the word, the same as a perfect man. I'm going to tell you what I believe he's saying. There isn't a single person, no matter how good a Christian he is, that never sins with his tongue. He never does anything wrong with his tongue. He never says the wrong thing. He never missays things. He never, ever, ever sins with his tongue. There just aren't any of those. But James is not saying that from the standpoint of saying, and that's okay. Tell a lie when you need to lie. It's okay. Go ahead and, you know, you get mad, say the things you shouldn't. That's okay. Go ahead and be inconsiderate of your fellow man, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your children, your parents, and just say whatever you feel. That's okay. He's not saying that. Of course he's not saying that. No, what James is saying, what the Lord is saying is, if you're able to control the tongue, then you're able, you're a perfect person. You're, You're as complete as you need to be. And you're able to bridle the whole body. But understand, the principle is... If I can control my tongue, I can control everything about my life, it necessarily then follows the more I control my tongue, the more I'm at least able to control my whole body. And that's why it becomes a watermark. You know, a watermark is what you can, you know, a piece of paper you hold up to the light and you see the printer or the maker's mark of the paper. You can read it very clearly. And, uh, you know, it's in the paper. It's indelibly in the paper. It's there to stay. Well, the mark of a Christian's self-control is how much diligence he or she applies, not just to the easy things, but the hardest things. I tell you, when I decided to become a Christian, you've heard me say this many times, I walked into the hotel room where I was, I looked in the mirror and I said, Michael, if you're going to be a Christian, you can't do this and 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 you've got to do this. And I stayed in there a while. And there were some things that I said in that mirror that night in Andalusia, Alabama, and I have never done them again. Now, that's great, isn't it? 
And there were some things I said I have to do, and I've done them. And there are other things I've been working on for almost 40 years now. And they're still not conquered. I can look at a lot of them and say, you're a lot better. You really are. But you're not there yet. And that's Christianity. That is self-control. And the more you apply yourself, the more diligence you give to being a controlled individual, and you start with those things that stand out. My anger, my lust, my tongue, my mouth. Those things stand out in your life. They're not an occasional once-in-a-lifetime you know, situation where you get in it and you have to choose and you handle it a certain way and it's usually over and done and you never have to fool with it again. Those are not those things. These are the everyday things of life that the moment you think you won't have to do with them again, here they come again. And the more self-control you exercise, the more you are able to control all the things in your life that need to be controlled. I want us to sing a song. We can kind of take a break here. Now I'm going to come back and close out for a couple of minutes. But I want us to sing this song, Angry Words. And I want you to really listen to the words of the song and think about self-control. I asked James if you'll lead this. And so James, come ahead. Thirty-seven angry words. Angry words, oh, let them never from the tongue unbridled slip. May the heart best impulse
The disciple of Jesus Christ realizes, as you look at these different paragraphs, and we won't belabor them anymore, but as you look at the different things, those everyday things of life, he realizes, like that song expresses, I can get carried away in any area. I can get so angry that I kill somebody. I can lust so much that I lose my wife and family, my husband and family. I can break my word and destroy friendships, the closest I ever had. I can say things that hurt people so that I'm never able to recover from that. I can react in such a way, a situation like Jesus goes on to talk about, I can react in such a way that I stand up for my rights and lose the opportunity to convert a soul to the Lord. I can brag about my achievements and the things I've done good, whether it be fasting or charity or all of such things. And I can destroy my influence that I could have had if I had been humble about it. And we can go on and on with that. The Christian understands that it is important to apply self-control. That he must if he's going to be a holy person. That it's a process growing more and more holy each day as a Christian, as a disciple, as an outstanding disciple. And he or she will do whatever is necessary. We go back to Jesus' paragraph on lust and the pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. Does Jesus mean that literally? Well, I don't know that he never means it literally. There might be a situation. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what Jesus is saying is be willing to go to whatever extremes are necessary because it's that important. And so a Christian considers himself and he's on guard, and he thinks about it. Um, if he realizes the situation is, even if he or she didn't mean it to, if it's getting out of hand, if maybe something started out as a, a genuine friendship or a genuine working relationship, and that's what you meant it to be, and you realize at some point, wait a minute, this is going where I don't want it to go, then you do what is necessary to stop it. You don't just go along with it because, hey, everybody thinks it's okay. You don't start talking to your fellow workers and so forth that are not Christians and have them reassure you that it's okay, that everybody does it, don't worry about it, etc., etc. No, you, you go to the extremes that are necessary to preserve your self-control, your holiness, but to preserve everything that exists around you that depends on your self-control. And so we're willing to go to those measures. And, and I think we all understand that. We will remove ourselves from situations. We'll do whatever is necessary so that we can maintain that self-control. It's necessary. And if you've been someone who's failed at that, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, then you understand all the more how important it is to change that and be a controlled individual. We'll never do it perfectly. And I don't believe that the Bible teaches us if you did fail. And if you haven't been doing it as diligently as you need to, then just give up, quit, because, you know... I mean, we may feel that way, like I said this morning. But God's call is not you get one chance and then that's it. No, God's call is get up and try again. And try harder this time. And learn from your mistakes and your failures. God calls us to be outstanding disciples who live an outstanding lifestyle. 
Passages in the Bible teach us how important it is to be different. I won't go through Colossians 3 or Ephesians 4, but I'd like for you to go home and read those two chapters. It speaks of the new man. It speaks in terms of you did this before, now do this. You you once were like this, don't be like that, be like this. It's because the Christian has a love for God's law. Not just because he sees it as you have to do this and you can't do that. That's the way I looked at the Bible when I was a teenager and I wanted no part of it. It's not that. It's a love for the difference in life that God's law can make. When we looked at David last week, we saw someone who meditated on the law day and night. But we saw someone who kept saying again and again and again that the more he did that, the more it kept him from sin and the wiser it made him and the better life it gave him. That hasn't changed. That's true for you and me, just like it was for David. And that's what a Christian does. He replaces the seeds of sin, the things that have begun to grow in him, even if he's made it a habit, a bad habit. And every girl dressed like Jane he sees, he lusts and he begins to conjure scenarios and all of that. Even if he's done that, he changes it. And he says, I want my life to be different. That's not satisfying. It is not getting me the life I wanted. But the law of God will. And so he replaces all of that with the seed of the Word of God. Like Hebrews chapter 4 The Word of God gets inside him and it cuts all the way through the bones and the marrow and all of that terminology there, but it means it gets to the deepest core of you and it lives in you. It is a powerful and living sword within you. And your thoughts are exercised now to discern good and evil. In other words, you know when things are not going the way they need to go. You know when you're thinking like you shouldn't think, when you're doing like you shouldn't do, and you do what is necessary to alter that course. Like David said, I meditate on the law of God. It is my meditation all the day. Read with me one final passage. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to go to chapter 9. Yeah, that's where I want to go. Get that. I don't know where I want to go. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Yeah, there it is. Alright, so 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm looking at different parts of my outline here. But go down with me to the end of chapter 9. Now here is Paul and expressing the idea of self-control. Again, doesn't use the term. Well, sort of uses the term. But it's like Everton read the passage for us. A passage we will re- review many times. And you notice, if you were reading the King James... It tells you to gird up the loins of your minds, like draw your belt tighter and be sober. And that word for sober, and I asked Everton, I said, what translation are you reading? He said, the New International, because it said, be self-controlled. That's literally the word that is there. So gird up the loins of your mind. Work on your head, be self-controlled, and thus be holy, for I am holy. Now look with me at 1 Corinthians 9, down in verse 25. Every man that strives for the mastery, the crown, like we were looking at in Revelation this morning, he is self-controlled, temperate in all things. Now they do it, that is the world, when they go out to win a trophy or whatever. They do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I run like that, Paul 
says, and he means the Christian race. I therefore so run, notice, not as uncertainly. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. I'm not haphazardly just trying to chase holiness out here. And we're going to talk more and more about that. But I'm on a course. I know what I'm doing, and I know what I have to do. So he says, not as uncertainly. And so fight I, not as one that beats the air. Have you ever seen a kid, a little kid, when he gets really mad, and he doesn't know how to fight, and he can't defend himself, and he gets very angry, and he starts just wildly swinging? doesn't get him anywhere. doesn't do anything. It expresses his anger, but it doesn't accomplish anything. Paul said, I don't fight like that. I know the punches, and I think he means spiritually speaking, at Satan, that I need to throw, and I know how to throw them. And so he says, verse 27, I keep under my body. I control it, is the idea. And I bring it into subjection lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. And you know what that tells you? It tells you you can know it. It tells you you can even say it or preach it. And it ain't got nothing to do with whether you do it. And that's the difference. It's the difference in being able to talk about Christianity and live it. We want to be outstanding disciples who are holy before God. If you're tonight and you're not a Christian, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God and you'll confess that, and tonight you're willing to change your life, start that process to holy. You'll be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. You can be a saint of God. You will be a holy individual. Maybe you're here tonight and you look at your life and you say, yeah, but since I was baptized, I haven't lived the life of a holy person. Then change it. Start it over. Start your life as a Christian over. Ask us. Come together. We'll pray together with you. The Lord will help you, and that's what's most important. And you can. Won't you please come? I'll change leads us in this song.